0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to FocusC.com/slash. /app or wherever apps are sold and now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. I forgot to set uh, the timer, so I'm going to go ahead and do that right now, get that stopwatch going. In today's podcast, we are going to be doing a two-part series of a and a Every Monday, for the most part, I tweet out um, a call for questions and then we will take your questions and then answer them on the podcast. We get a ton of questions now. um, So what we decided to do is really just dedicate two podcasts um, uh, to the Q&A. And what it really allows us to do is if we want to go deep on a topic, we could go deep and we don't have to be so superficial about it. So first question that come across is, what is the minimum amount of info you need to know to appraise a business? And he says he's referring to Jeff's 2013 Guru Focus article on how to practice valuation. And you actually used to do blind valuations often, I remember. You had some posts. And I stuff did like some that. posts
0: about blind valuation. Yeah, to give you an idea of, um, to try to get people to look at, without knowing anything about the stock, how they would value it, given like, you know, the earnings per share growth, the historical figures for the company, things like that. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it depends on the company. Um, because there are ways like with blind valuations that you could f- fool someone if you're trying to like trick them and get them to appraise it at a very high value or very low value, despite, um, uh, you know, the, the because they don't have all the facts, but for a lot of companies, I guess you would to have it within a certain range of reasonableness. Uh, it would be probably less than you think if you have a lot of historical data. Um, one year's data will not be very useful though. I think people rely too much on like one year's data. So like thinking that just based on this year's EBITDA or something, but if you had 10 or 20 years of data, like you can get from quick FS and things like that. Um, I think that it might be less information about the business than you might think you need to know. Mm -hmm. Cause like I'll go through, through things where I'll look at all these banks and stuff. And, um, you can kind of guess without knowing certain things about the bank's business model um how successful it is at things and stuff just from financial results if you have like 20 years of financial results so you don't need a lot of information about business if you have a long amount of financial results Mm -hmm. you might need to know what industry it's in and things like that obviously yeah
1: and you have said before too so even if you have 10 to 20 years of data no matter what if it's EBITDA free cash flow net income you usually use like a a three-year average as well too
0: yes definitely yeah i'd be most cautious about using too few recent years for a business yeah
1: got it um next question says i assume that options in general are less accessible to your strategy since most illiquid unknown stocks don't have option contracts Mm -hmm. written for them however what are your thoughts on long dated options specifically calls or warrants to generate leverage slash outsized returns um
0: we've talked sometimes about leaps uh, so they're talked about in the book you can be a stock market genius and that makes sense for some uh, big stocks you could do that in uh, I don't know about using it to generate bigger returns I'm a little doubtful about that I think it makes more sense to use it in stocks in which there's some reason why you think the chance that the stock could decline a lot under some scenarios within the period that the option is over um, would be the ones that are most beneficial to you so in other words to reduce the amount of money that you put into the stock you buy a smaller amount of options a smaller dollar amount than you would um in the stock because you have some fear that it'll go under or something like that Mm -hmm. so the example from you can be a stock market genius is like wells fargo they were having problems with california real estate and stuff like that That would make sense to me um more so than for a value investor that you might want to do something like that just because it's more similar like buffett doing his convertible preferreds and things like that which you can't do um so if, if there's some reason why you'd be cautious about the common stock the reason why you would buy something like an option or a convertible or something like that that make more sense is if there's some if the common stock is attractive, but for some reason doesn't have as much downside protection as normal, the biggest difference between a common stock and other forms of securities usually is that for certain businesses, the common stock has a very low chance of going down close to zero. Um, And because of that, it you're because of that, it's very easy to pay too much for options and things versus the common stock. If that, is present that protection so if it's a very safe stock you're mm-hmm. likely to you're likely to make a mistake by buying the options however if it's not a safe stock it's possible that it might make sense um and so like for instance buffett invested in convertible preferred and stuff in uh, gillette and that's just not necessary buying the common stock would have been a perfectly good investment too Uh, whereas buying the convertible preferred into something like Solomon or something makes sense. Now you're in a different position with options than convertible preferreds and stuff. So it sounds weird that I'm saying that, but the advantage can be similar because you could buy a lot less of it. And that's what I'm saying. So you could put 2% of your portfolio into something instead of 20% and get similar upside in, in some stocks, um, by doing that, which is kind of like being higher up in the, um, uh, in seniority and stuff in terms of like how little you're risking of your investment. Uh, But I think usually when people, I mean, not usually, all the time when people ask about it, they want to almost leverage returns even more and stuff that was already risky to begin with. So it's not something that we do.
1: And you really think about it from like a risk minimization standpoint then basically.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me that you might want to buy things like leaps in certain Investments that almost seem like it would be um, too risky to buy into them because of something that hasn't been decided yet. Like the one that I mentioned was like um, Carnival with COVID, mm-hmm. because you know the business will be worth something afterwards and stuff. But even with that, honestly, if you're going to do that, you could just buy um, uh, you could just buy the debt of Carnival, especially if you're like a professional investor and stuff. That would make a lot of sense is to look into
1: buying the debt instead. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Next question it says: Hidden champions of the 21st century distills research into strategy recommendations for companies that want to be like hidden champions. Do you agree with Herman Simon's conclusion about strategies? Is this type of thinking in your investment process?
0: Um, no, not really. I don't usually agree with management books' conclusions on those things and stuff. And also, hidden champions for the most part don't have like amazing returns on equity or anything like that. Um, they're They're fine, but as a group, they're not necessarily amazing businesses. They're resilient usually, and they do a good job in whatever little niche they're in. But I don't think it's necessarily something that um, I would suggest companies follow,
1: no. Next question, how do you decide to sell parts of a position because it becomes too big of a position in your portfolio? Say if you think the stock is still undervalued, do you still sell to keep position sizing? Thanks.
0: Um, I mean, people do and stuff, really Mm -hmm. you shouldn't. I mean, there's not a lot more to say about that, except it's probably a mistake to do it. Everyone does it. And mm-hmm. it's almost certainly a mistake mathematically, um,
1: a devastating mistake mathematically. Um, like a lot of people, if they put on like a 10% position and it grows to 20, they'll like pair it back to 10. Yeah. Stuff I'll give like you that. an
0: example. So Amazon, I think has returned about 30% a year for the last 20 years, something like that. So if you had bought Amazon And you had bought four, uh, yeah, Amazon and four other companies at the same time. And all the other four companies went bankrupt. And Amazon, you held on to this whole time. Uh, Your returns over the 20-year period would be 20% a year on your full portfolio. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you would have only been decreased by 10% a year over the full um, 20 years uh, from losing complete loss on 80% of your original portfolio. That only works because you kept letting it compound on that other part of your portfolio. What people will do is they'll cut back the sizing on that. And that will result in much worse returns. So the truth is you really shouldn't do that. But all professionals do it and would probably get fired if they didn't, not just from a risk perspective, but because of what would happen to their returns. Their returns would look really good in some years and then really terrible in other years, which is something they can't really do. I mean, you'd be up huge amounts. But for an individual, like following a coffee can portfolio perspective, it does make sense to just actually hold on with it unless you're selling for a business reason. So that would make the most sense um but yeah it's a problem that even we can have and stuff that way that things can get oversized and particularly it has a timing issue i think is one reason people don't do it who are professionals and even individuals if you judge yourself year to year but like an individual doesn't need to do that there's no reason for you to calculate your annual returns you don't need to do that instead you could just calculate returns in each stock since the time you bought it there's no reason to like use the
1: calendar you know when you say sell because of business reasons, you mean to to buy another stock, or what do you what do you mean by that? No, just like if you need cash or something.
0: No, 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 just reasons like the you you think something's changed with the company okay. that you don't like. So, f- as an example, I gave the example of Amazon. There are plenty of times where Amazon would have been overpriced or something, so that you might have wanted to sell because you're worried about the price. Mm-hmm. But there was never a point in the last twenty years where Amazon would have concerned you about a business. And there's lots of other stocks like that. We mentioned Activision. There's no point in the last 20 years or whatever where you have been concerned about Activision as a business enough to sell it. However, there are with other companies. And so there's plenty of examples where you might have invested in something and then decided I want to sell because something about the business has changed. Like I invested in Village Supermarket after the first 10 years or so after I invested, some things had changed. Not that it was like super risky, but it no longer had a lot of path for growth. So you might want to sell for business reasons, not
1: just price reasons got it um next question thoughts on investing in liquidations have any experience with them any thoughts on the Lubbies, lubies liquidation
0: yeah. uh, i have invested in liquidations before
1: and um
0: let's see the only one of the only times i've had a very large loss in a stock was in a liquidation um that was planned and then didn't go through and stuff so that does happen Although if I did calculations on the annualized returns for all my investments in liquidations, they'd probably still be pretty good. But that's the experience that I've had in liquidations, just like merger arbitrage and stuff. It's uh, kind of an odd experience because you don't have... It's not a lot of fun to do it. um, And most people stop doing it, I'd say. uh, But it's probably gives you better returns on average than other kinds of investing. Um, The reason why people stop doing it is because you make a bunch of money on things just going through as expected. And then you, the only things that are different from what you expect are these big losses that you have. It's sort of like an insurance business or something, but yeah, I've done it. Other people I know have done it. Uh, I think returns are generally pretty good from it, uh, on an annualized basis, but most people who do it, I think eventually stop. And one of my o- only very large losses in a stock was in a liquidation that didn't go through it happened because there was no
1: financing available for it and stuff because of the financial crisis did you own the stock like pre-announcement of liquidation nope. and then just went not oh okay so you no no, like, no. Did, like, an arbitrage. for
0: the liquidation and everything and it in as long as they would have had bank financing it would be almost 100 percent guaranteed they would have liquidated and stuff it was all good for that it's sort of like covid the same thing could have happened for covid so some companies like announced they were going to liquidate their stores or something for like bankruptcy type things. Now this wouldn't have affected affect common shareholders, but it could have happened to debt holders. So you expected that it was going to happen, right? And then the stores got closed down. So it couldn't for a few months, Mm -hmm. same sort of thing. It happened in something in the financial crisis where they couldn't obtain short-term financing for things. And so basically, you know, it, um, you had disaster happen that way, but that's not unusual. Uh, merger arbitrage stuff all fell apart when mm-hmm. financing for that ha- happens. So yeah, you
1: have a couple that are huge losses. Next question. Have you ever valued a business with one, the customer based method or two, the abnormal earnings method, comps, DCF, others are appropriate for which types of businesses?
0: Um, I don't know exactly those methods. I think, I think I don't know exactly what the abnormal earnings method is. um, and I'm not sure if I – I have used customer-based methods, but I don't know if it's exactly what he's talking about there. Um, the So things like the DCFs and stuff, um, the comps, DCFs. Uh, I've used DCFs in a couple cases. Um, DCFs are most appropriate in cases, I would say, in which the company owns – an asset with a long um, life left on it that it's depleting. So, two ways in which I've used DCF things are where there's an existing customer base and you can use the DCF to value sort of how long the existing customers will, you'll lose them and how much cash flow you'll get off of them and things like that. And then the other reason for using it would be in um, cases where there's a finite lifespan that's very easy to measure and stuff. So uh, we've, uh, I don't know if we, let's see, if we talked about it on this podcast ever, but we talked about a cemetery company with Trey Mm -hmm. on, I forget if it was on his podcast, I talked about it or on our podcast, but um, that you talked with him about it. Uh, But that would be one, Uh, I think I've written about Mills Music Trust on the website, Focus Compounding that's copyrights that will be coming off over time for songs um and definitely i have mentioned before u.s lime which own one of the reasons for doing a dcf is that compared to most natural resource companies like an oil company it owns an unusual amount of um of life left on its resources so the reserve life is very long Mm -hmm. so that's something that's important because see sometimes people will value a a oil company on something like um price to earnings or something, right? Or dividend yield. Sure. But if it only has twelve years left on its reserve life versus another company that has a hundred years left, it becomes significant. And it becomes very significant if interest rates are low. So I would use it in cases like that. And, you know, you say, okay, so if they have sixty million tons left and they're producing at about a million a year, then you use like a real rate
1: and all that sort of thing. So yeah, DCFs are most appropriate in those cases. Mm. Um, should e- uh, he says, what's the downside value for NACO? And then, should EBITDA minus CapEx be a better measure, as it ignores working capital changes, which tend to even out over the long term?
0: I don't agree that working capital changes tend to even out over the long term. Um, that's not really correct in my mind. Um, I mean, unless they're asking specifically about NACO, in which working capital isn't very important, but. Um, Working capital changes have to do with the um, they have to do with the process of a company moving through time. So usually, for a company, you will have very different um, working capital changes depending on if the company is growing or shrinking, and what kind of company it is. Some companies, as they grow, will use up a lot of working capital. I would just say that because you can look at companies like I would say look at uh, IEH Corporation, IEHC, and try to look at EBITDA minus CapEx versus looking at what their growth in working capital has been over the last 10 years. Or look at Tandy, which is having to impair inventory and do a whole accounting review because of the same reason. Now flip that and look at things like Cheesecake Factory over the last 10 years. Before COVID, it was getting to use less and less working capital because of things that it was doing with... um, uh, how fast it was paying suppliers versus how, how fast it was paying its employees and things like that. Um, it was generating more ability to tie up less working capital over time. That all reversed, of course, the moment that COVID happened because it's something that through time is working that way. It's very important to understand this about working capital. Working capital is a time lag thing one way or the other. So do you have to buy inventory on a speculative basis for your customers and hold it If so, as you open up new stores and do all these things, you're not creating cash profits. So, And then you have the reverse situation, which the companies that are generating float and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But you have to realize that if you have a company that generates float, like an ad agency or something, if something hits like COVID that immediately reverses the same thing with an insurance company. I've seen people look at insurance companies and think, Oh, they generate a lot of float and everything. That's great. But if you're analyzing them at a time where they're worried about their underwriting and so they suddenly cut back their premiums a lot. Now the floats going to go in the opposite direction, you know, because they have to get serious about that. And in fact, one of the problems that things like insurers have is that they can actually bring in more money today. By just writing more business now. So it's actually a a way of doing it. I mean, I think Geico did that in the 70s. That They thought, oh, we're having some problems. But if we um, write even more insurance, we can get out of those problems. We can bring in money today. So I think it's very important not to do that. I know a lot of people use EBITDA minus CapEx. And for the average business or whatever, does it work fine? Maybe. But the really interesting examples where I think value investors get it wrong are that the working capital changes are very favorable to the company. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, like, for decades, people undervalued um, ad agencies and stuff. Or the opposite, the working capital changes are very unfavorable. I mentioned, too, I think value investors could easily overvalue um, IEH Corporation and uh, Tandy Leather. Because if they were just focusing on things like EBITDA, I think that's not right.
1: Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think people use EBITDA minus CapEx a lot because it spits out a higher valuation or?
0: Um, It's also easier because you don't have to worry about the working capital changes Mm -hmm. wherever a longer period of time you do. I mean, one way of doing the working capital thing, for instance, if you're saying, does it tend to even out over the long term? You could just take 10 years of what is the average free cash flow margin and apply it to today's sales. Like that's an appropriate way of doing it. So saying, okay, on average, they've generated 5% of um sales converting to free cash flow each year if you take a 10-year average of that and you say okay it's five percent and you multiply it by today's sales you're getting a fairly accurate number the other thing is you have i think you have to analyze a business on the basis of asking a question like okay do i think it'll keep growing at this rate or do i think it'll stop and if it stops what will the situation be if it stops you want the situation to be that it throws off a lot of free cash flow Mm -hmm. and for a lot of businesses that's true if they really stop growing then they'd be generating a lot of free cash flow. But again, using an example like Tandy or something, if you look at the last five years or something, the quality of the growth and stuff could be seen to be not as good as it had been 10 or 15 years ago, in part if you analyze the cash flow statement. And, you know, so I think that's a very important part of it, uh, the
1: quality of the earnings through looking at working capital changes. Got it. Do you have anything on what's the downside value for NACO? Well, NACO has
0: some c- cash, right? Right. And it has some debt. I would imagine that the cash in excess of the debt is a reasonable downside value for the company, certainly. Um, It owns some other things, too. Technically, the debt is non-recourse to the parent company and stuff. Um, It would depend on whether they're willing to put money into businesses that are non-recourse, where the debt is non-recourse and stuff to them. So, I mean, they have cash. They have acreage of natural gas and stuff. So they have other things besides just the, the... coal business that they have but i don't know exactly what the downside value would be no but the stock can go way further down i sure. mean the stock can do anything so mm-hmm. I, i'm you know this so, i mean i would say on average let's see since the if you look at the price that is today versus what it is at the spinoff um like what it's average in earnings over the spinoff i guess it's trading at like four to six times it's average earnings of that period so if you can trade it four to six times it can trade it two times you know i mean the stock
1: can go anywhere that's not a problem mm-hmm. got it cool well i don't thank everybody so much for tuning in to the first part of the q a series we'll pick it back up in the next episode that will be uploaded later in the week i don't thank everybody so much for tuning in hit the subscribe buttons and we will see you in the next podcast